welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Green Room in the Veterans Building here in San Francisco on this Wednesday evening, May 4th, 2011. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. It's such a pleasure to welcome you. I don't know if it's such a pleasure to welcome you to the very last Points of View program of the season. I can't believe the season has really zipped by quite so fast, but what a full season it was. The Points of View programs are produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, along with the Meet the Artist interviews that you see in the Opera House prior to certain performances. And these are recorded for podcasting. I know you all are familiar with how to get to the website and check for the latest podcasts, for the videos that are posted, for news, press releases, interviews with the dancers. It's really quite an elaborate and very successful website. This evening, we are going to be able to focus on program eight, which is The Little Mermaid. Before we do that, I think I would like to back up just a bit and say, um, in addition to the Center for Dance Education, directed by Charles Chip McNeil, I also want to mention that all of the adult programming is coordinated by our adult education program manager, Cecilia Beam, and she deserves a very great thank you for the successful, thank you, behind the scenes, um, quite elaborate organizing that goes on. So thank you, Cecilia. Also to remind you that we do have um, listening assistance devices for anyone who would like those. They're available in the back. I think they need a little piece of ID or collateral that they will return to you if you check out one of the assisted living, assisted listening devices. <laughs> I'll get that down eventually. Um, so, as I was saying, we're going to be looking at program um, eight, which is The Little Mermaid, but we also have uh, enjoyed a custom in recent times of looking ahead at the next season. And I think in the interests of teasing you and hoping that you will um, build enthusiasm for renewing your subscriptions, for getting in line for tickets for next year's season, because I think it's once again going to be an exciting one. Um, we start with a list of world premieres, which of course we know nothing about yet, but um, choreographer Edward Liang, who is actually from Marin County, but has had an international career, and I think we could say in the vernacular is very hot right now, so we're excited to get one of his pieces. Mark Morris' piece is always exciting for the ballet and for the audience. Ashley Page will be new to us. Ashley is the director of the Royal Scottish Ballet, is an alumnus of the Royal Ballet of England, and um, is building a body of work in the repertoire, so that will be exciting. And then another new work by our own um, choreographer in residence, Yuri Posikoff. <clears throat> we have San Francisco Ballet premieres, which, um, generally speaking, pretty exciting. I think we're going to get our Petipa Tutu fix. Um, looking ahead to um, the new production of Don Quixote 
and to the return of Nereyev's Raimonda. It's um, Nereyev's staging of the Petipa, Act Three of Raimonda. The season, however, starts off with the San Francisco Ballet premiere of John Cranko's Eugene Onegin, and that will be very exciting. That's a staple in the international repertoire, has been for, I think, 40 years, and it will be the exciting dramatic ballet for the company, and it opens the season, program one. Um, we are, as I believe, celebrating 60 years of Balanchine repertoire in our company's history, and uh, you know that'll give me the opportunity to get all historical on everybody, which is my favorite thing. But um, returning to the rep after quite a break is Scotch Symphony to the Mendelssohn music, which is a very lovely, um, it's the very soft and romantic side of Balanchine, in contrast to some of the edgier things that we know. Then, of course, there are the things returning from the rep, the current season and previous seasons. Um, Christopher Wilden's number nine from this season, pretty successful, returns. McGregor's Chroma, those of you who were absolutely thrilled by it and those of you who were a little mystified by it, you get your chance to see it again. Fabulous picture. I'm sure many of you will remember Alexei Ratmansky's Carnival of the Animals, um, Carnival des Animaux, which was a semi-serious rendition of the Carnival of the Animals. Fabulous costuming, um, unforgettable dying swan. How many of you do remember that? Yes. Helgi Thomason's new work this season, Trio, will return. Uh, I think it's mid-season. We have Romeo and Juliet, um, Helgi's Romeo and Juliet. And a return of his piece from a couple years ago, the fifth season. And a return of one of my personal favorites, Jerome Robbins' Glass Pieces. Helgi's sensation, oh, I'm sorry, um, Yuri's sensational piece from this season, Raku, returns. And then we will have one program will be an all-balancing program, including the um, Scotch Symphony, the Divertimento number uh, no. 15, and the Four Temperaments. We always like it when we can showcase the many sides of balancing. So um, I hope you're all excited and that next year we'll um, see everybody wanting to experience and know more about that incredibly diverse repertoire. We're going to now look at The Little Mermaid fairly briefly. Is there anyone here who actually has not seen it either last year or this year? A bunch. It's hard to categorize other than to say it's a sensational work of dance theater, extraordinary dancing, extraordinary sets and costumes, riveting story, 
I hope you're all aware that this is <clears throat> choreographer John Neumeyer's return to the Hans Christian Andersen tale and then his own reading of the experiences of Hans Christian Andersen and his telling of the story. If any of you happen to have a Disney version in the back of your mind, turn it out. It's not there. Here we have Yuan Yuan Tan and guest artist Lloyd Riggins performing the role of the mermaid and Neumeyer's character who has been inserted into his ballet, the poet. The poet perhaps represents Hans Christian Andersen. If you know the story, you will recognize the sea witch, the, the evil character with the mermaid. You can get a sense of the extraordinary costuming, the um, influence of Japanese no theater in the costuming. Further on in the story, the prince, his bride, the princess, and here is the mermaid who has achieved her goal of becoming human and getting feet. The mermaid is so infatuated with the prince. The four central characters the princess, danced by Sarah Van Patten, <clears throat> the mermaid, Yuan Yuan Tan, the prince, T. Telemetz, and this is Pascal Molat dancing the poet. And I'm, we are going to be talking about the mermaid quite a bit more when we get to the meat of this evening's discussion. San Francisco Ballet has a long history of filming dance. I'm sure that many of you in this audience can remember the late 70s and early 80s when San Francisco Ballet filmed and then aired on public TV Michael Smeon's Romeo and Juliet, which was actually filmed on a soundstage in Nashville, Tennessee, I believe. Um, in 1981, the company filmed Smuin's The Tempest, and that was live from the War Memorial Opera stage. There are many stories to tell about that. We might hear some of them this evening. There are other, paging through my notes here, uh, other films have been made of San Francisco ballet dancing in recent history. Um, in 1985, the Lou Christensen, Michael Smeon version of Cinderella was filmed. Slightly before that, uh, Smeon's Song for Dead Warriors was filmed. All of these were aired on public television and none of them is available to the public. Actually, Lou Christensen himself was involved in the concept of filming dance very early on. He felt very strongly committed to the idea that the film medium and especially television, was going to be the way that dance would reach the populace, as it were. Um, some examples, as early as 1952, there was a program in the Bay Area called The Standard Hour, produced by Standard Oil. And some of you are nodding. The San Francisco Ballet made an, any number of appearances on The Standard Hour. 
Then in um, the Christmas of 1964, the company filmed Lou Christensen's Nutcracker with Cynthia Gregory as the Sugar Plum Fairy and David Anderson as her prince. And that was actually broadcast on New Year's Day, 65. Um, in 65, the company toured to New York City, performing at City Center. And while they were there, the members of the company appeared on the Ed Sullivan Show. I'd give anything to see some clips from that. Um, in 1966, on the Bell Telephone Hour, in 1968, they filmed Lou Christensen's Beauty and the Beast with um, Linda Meyer uh, as the beauty, Robert Gladstein and David Anderson in the dual role of Prince and Beast. That was sponsored in part by, um, I'm losing the details, um, Monaco, the uh, festival, whether it was a film festival or I can't remember the exact details, but I do know from conversations with Linda Meyer, she went to Monaco um, to be part of the premiere of the film there. Um, then, in 2001, the company filmed Lar Lubavitch's Othello. And then in 2000 seven, broadcast in 2008, the company filmed the most recent uh, version, Helgi Thomason's version of Nutcracker. And so now, here we are, this week, they are filming The Little Mermaid. And any conversation about filming dance is incredibly interesting. And so this is a very appropriate time for me to ask my guests to join me here and we're going to hear about the whole idea of filming dance from their points of view. So please welcome Glenn McCoy and Judy Flannery. And if I could just remind you to speak right into the tip of it. You okay. probably know as well as anybody right. about audio. Yeah. I so. just make the shows. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, thank you both so much for being here. This is anything like um, the filming of any production of dance has got to generate some conversation. <laughs> so I just actually thought perhaps we'd start. Glenn, you have been with the company for a very long time now. Forever. <laughs> not, not quite, but close. Um, thumbnail sketch of your responsibilities here at the company. Your title is executive director. Right, so I basically am responsible for all of the business and support side. Uh, Helgi has an artistic vision. He's responsible for all of the personnel who create, who, uh, who realize that vision. And then on my side, we handle all the budgeting, the scheduling, uh, collective bargaining. We work with seven unions, um, all the facilities, all the touring activity. Uh, and I have an amazing staff uh, who raise the money, who sell the tickets, who schedule the, uh, everything that Helgi wants to do, who negotiate with uh, the designers and the choreographers to basically provide the support uh, to realize Helgi's vision. I like to say to our folks that uh, we are all about supporting, creating a space 
in which the artists are free to just focus on creating dance. Great, thank you, Gwen. And as you said, you've been here forever. You actually have risen through the ranks of administration, holding just about every position. <laughs> just about on the on the administrative side, yes. Yeah. I uh, actually sort of recreated myself. I started uh, right out of school. I started in marketing, uh, and I was at the Metropolitan Opera for six years, and I was the advertising manager. Mm. And um, when I got hired by the San Francisco Opera, came out to San Francisco. Of course, fell in love with San Francisco. And uh, but I I felt I had trained as an actor, and I felt. I was getting too far removed from what was happening on stage, so I decided to basically start over. And at that time, Helgi had been in place for about a year and a half, and he had a new administrative team coming on. The new general manager knew me by reputation in New York, although we hadn't worked together. And uh, she invited me to come over and join the team, and that was 25 years ago this coming October. Judy, yes. welcome. Thank you. Um, your thumbnail bio. You've been involved with San Francisco Ballet for various, in various capacities now yes, for a very long time I as have. well. And I have to first say that um, I was a longtime fan uh, and patron and basically a fan of ballet and fan of San Francisco Ballet in particular for a very long time. And um, as Cecilia Beam knows, when I was a young girl, I had dreams of becoming a dancer, and that didn't last very long. But the love of dance, the love of ballet, has always been in my heart. And I thought it was a, a wonderful opportunity when my career took off in television, the broadcast side, that I would come back to dance on the other side. And it was just a wonderful um, opportunity to be back with the San Francisco Ballet, a place I would have loved to have been as a, as a dancer, as a young girl, but to come back many years later and find myself making films for the company. So that was a very interesting way to come back. But basically my background is um, um, in, in film and, and production. And for years um, in the 80s or whatever it was, um, I was the cultural uh, director of cultural programming for the public television station here in San Francisco, KQED. And uh, then I left in 89 and began to freelance and work for companies such as Great Performances, New York, and then uh, BBC in Europe and some of the European companies who have the money and the interest to support the arts. So um, I've basically been a hired gun the last um, 10 or so years. Yeah. And you have been involved with the various filmings that I was referencing. I have, starting with The Tempest. Uh -huh. I did not go to Nashville to do Romeo and Juliet, but starting with The Tempest, um, I've done, I think, all the San Francisco Ballet productions, including some outside of the Opera House, uh, which would include a song for Dead Warriors, which we did in the studio at KQED, and also one of my favorite pieces, which was Jinx, Lute. Christensen's piece, uh, and we shot that film style, and I just thought that was one of my most favorite little art pieces. You know. So yes, I, I have a history of making these things happen here. 
fantastic. Well, we are so lucky that you're with us tonight. And I, I know there are stories to be told. So besides getting some really good information about filming, we might be entertained. Um, Glenn, why does the company decide that a film needs to happen? I, I will preface that by saying, if I had a nickel for everyone who comes up to me in the lobby and says, can we get a film of this? We could fund one of these films, but go ahead. And, and that is, that's just it, it's the funding that, <laughs> that stops most of these ideas. You know, it, it really has to be the right combination of um, the piece, uh, the particular ballet, um, in terms of whether or not it's fundable. Uh, it has to have appeal to different markets. So Judy is expert at connecting us with foreign broadcasters and the folks at PBS, and they will tell us whether they think there's a real market for that particular title. So once there's that level of interest, uh, then we start to figure out how to fund it. And uh, more and more, Judy, uh, it really taught me a lot about this in the last three years. More and more, these projects, which are very expensive, uh, this project's about a million dollar project, and uh, more and more, they only happen if you get a group of partners together, and more and more, that's a group of international partners. So this particular project, uh, that million dollars is split pretty evenly three ways between uh, the San Francisco Ballet, uh, great performances, WNET New York, and uh, our foreign uh, partner, BFMI, Ber and, Bernard Fleischer. Right, and the distributor, C, uh, C Major Entertainment, the European component of this production. They were responsible for the other third, or close to the other third. Oftentimes, folks who um, are well-intentioned will say, surely if you just made a film of the ballet and sold it, you'd make a lot of money. That'd be a moneymaker. Um, I'm getting that maybe that's not exactly how it works. You know, I, the, I, I like to think of it in terms of classical arts. Uh, it's not unlike uh, folks saying, well, baseball players make $50 million. So why do dancers make what they make? There's just a different, the economics are just completely different. Um, a classical title, Judy, probably a, a good-selling classical title may sell around 5,000 units. Um, in terms of DVDs, we're talking about DVDs. Right. But um, what happens with these partnerships, if you have the BBC involved or a European broadcaster or PBS, they put up the money in exchange for broadcast rights. So when PBS puts up their money, they in turn have the ability to broadcast in the United States, and that's also true with the European partners. So their money is basically going to allow the program to be seen. So if you think about all those partners who've already spent the money, then you have to find other people who have not spent money who might want your show, and uh, that market gets smaller and smaller, and, that, and then therefore you find a distributor, and the dis distributor's job is to find other markets. But the other markets will come nowhere close mm -hmm. to what the initial investment is. So what happens is if you do make money, uh, we're talking relatively small amounts, 
And then you're also obliged, or we're obliged, to um, take any money that might come in, and it's shared as royalties uh, with uh, various creative contributors, or more likely, uh, most likely, or most of it, with uh, unions, with all the collective bargaining unions, performing unions, so they get royalties. And so what's left for the ballet is very little. Mm. Maybe just enough to cover the person writing the checks to but all the other people. That, you know. <laughs> so we're not in this for the money. Um, what are some of the reasons that we want to film? As I said to our board of trustees recently, uh, we had to raise about $400,000 uh, by the ballet, and it was tough schlogging. Mm -hmm. I thought we would never raise it, and Judy and I just couldn't understand it. It was such a no-brainer to us, because for $400,000, uh, the company is going to be seen in Little Mermaid by approximately 10 million people over the next few years. Here, as a point of reference, uh, combined Nutcracker and Repertory Season were seen by about 230,000 people. So the return on investment, if you will, is extraordinary. But with this particular title, uh, not only is the exposure so great, it shows a different side of San Francisco ballet. And I think an American ballet company, I don't know another American ballet company that uh, is dancing this kind of repertory, which is not so unusual in Europe, um, but it is a little bit unusual for an American company. And that's why uh, the, these international broadcasters are so very interested in this, uh, this project. So we're doing it um, for the PR, to get the company out there. International reputation. Yeah. Uh, I, I predict that this will make uh, San Francisco Ballet even more attractive to tour presenters, for instance. Uh, but also, um, we learned this from Nutcracker. And because we get so much feedback now from Facebook or from email, yeah. It's immediate, uh, and we get we get contacted from from people out in the middle of America who maybe have never even seen a ballet. They certainly have not seen San Francisco ballet. Mm -hmm. So um, I think it has just tremendous value in spreading the art form, but also enhancing the reputation mm -hmm. of this particular company. Yeah, um, the the techniques, the um, the. The, just the logistics involved, that's where we want to go next, perhaps. Um, Judy, what is your role, really? Can you describe for us? Well, someone once asked me, what does a producer do? And I said, well, I think they, they have an idea, they make it happen, and then they do just whatever it takes to make it happen. And that means everything, helping to find the money, helping to find the directing team, helping to find partners, helping to get all the, the production elements together, convincing the people involved that the, their work should be recorded, and in this case with um, John Neumeyer, finding the right director that we knew would complement him and his vision, because it's very uh, intense, and I think when you have two creative people working together, if the chemistry isn't right, you can have a disaster. And I have 
witnessed some instances where that has happened. So you do want to take great care in finding the right uh, director, television director or film director, to collaborate with the choreographer. And, uh, and again, trying to get the right team together. And that's very, very important. And uh, these projects are costly. You're trying to make the most of what you have in a very tight, limited amount of time. And uh, the best way to do it is to get a good team. And that's what a producer does. They try to get a good team pulled together. And obviously, the other thing that I have to do is, in this case, working with Glenn and Deborah uh, Bernard, the com uh, company general manager, working with all the um, collective bargaining unions. We have to get all these contracts done to make sure that we have the rights to do this show. And how you know are we going to operate uh, recording? And what sort of rights are they going to share on the back end? So there's a lot of preparation up front. So someone said, are you still working on this show? And I said, yes, after a year. But it's, you could easily spend a year in preparation for something like this. So a little story about Judy's role in making this project happen. Uh, last season, uh, one morning, we were doing Little Mermaid. She comes barging into my office. She said, I saw The Little Mermaid last night. I said, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I said, I completely agree. And she says, we have to capture it. And uh, she said, um, would you loan me uh, the archival recording? I'm on my way to New York uh, next week, and I'll meet with our friends at PBS, at Great Performances, and just see what they think. And really, within a couple of weeks, they were in with... Um, with a generous uh, investment commitment uh, up front to make this project happen. And that's really because uh, Judy saw it for what it would look like transferred to the screen and knew that there would be a market for it. Wonderful segue, wonderful. Because you said you took the archival film with you. Uh, before we actually look at some specific examples, we have some videos of some of the films that we've um, experienced. The, um, it's probably not a surprise to anyone to learn that every single performance, or at least um, a selection of performances during every season, are filmed. Every ballet is filmed. And it's filmed by somebody who knows what they're doing, standing at the back of the opera house and pressing go. I think there's some close-ups that happen and some widescreen things that happen, but it's archival. And my question now is going to be, where do we leave just making archival footage and letting people see that and begin what becomes really a new work of art, a film? Maybe I should talk about the purpose of the archival recording, and then Judy can talk about this separate uh, art piece. Um, the purpose of the archival recordings for us is not only to document the piece, but really to recreate the piece. Um, years ago, dance was recreated uh, through different types of notation. Uh, that's hardly ever done anymore, certainly in this country. Uh, in the UK, you find a lot of choreographers who still use notation, but most of the work that we recreate is done from videotape. And so 
that means that we want to capture the entire stage. We want to uh, capture the images close enough that we can make out the steps. Uh, but it's really not, it doesn't have much more nuance than that. And that's where it's very different from what uh, Judy's producing. And what's interesting is that uh, an archive recording, um, in order to, it, it really is, in my mind, someone sitting in the house, seeing the entire proscenium, everything on the stage, entrances, exits, all the dancers, relationships to each other, you're documenting for archival purposes what someone perhaps could see from the house. And what I find interesting over the last couple of years, as more and more ballet companies have their own media departments and they're recording these archive copies, they're starting to get a little more creative and they zoom in and this and that. And it's causing a problem for the television directors because in the past I would give the television director the house archive recording. And he would use that. I mean, we do have a few female directors, but most of them have been men. And um, the director would take the house archive recording and from that create an actual film script. And it's a very painstaking process. They take each scene and break down all the characters. They know that so-and-so enters a stage Stage left, stage right, upstage, downstage. How many feet do they walk across, dance across? What steps are they doing? Are they alone? Whatever. This is all meticulously notated. And he will determine which camera from the house will be capturing that part of the stage and that particular dancer. So when they get archive recordings that are too um, creative, they can't do their scripts, and they'll often come back and say, can you please just give me an old-fashioned archive recording? And uh, that's what they want. But it's the, the next step is very tedious. It's one of the few places we discourage creativity at the ballet. <laughs> so you um, bring in, you've mentioned a director, mm -hmm. and the director for Mermaid is going to be... Uh, Thomas, Thomas Grimm. Okay. Okay. And he is the one who is going to craft this into yes. the... Yes, and he also has a very interesting style of directing compared to some of the American directors that I've worked with. Um, we've had uh, Meryl Brockway, um, mm -hmm. we've had Emil Ardolino, Matthew Diamond, uh, Brian Large. We've had a number of different um, directors doing dance. But Thomas Grimm has a very interesting um, pedigree he has directed over 150 ballet productions mm -hmm. over his career. And it's just an amazing um, list of, of companies that he's worked with. But he has a unique style of directing. And that is that he has a couple, three cameras that are principally uh, situated to capture the main action. Then he's isolated all the other cameras because he uses eight of them. Eight cameras are positioned in the opera house. So if you go to see Little Mermaid this week, what's left of the run, you'll notice eight cameras. And each one of those cameras will be isolated and they're recorded in an isolated fashion. So that you have three cameras that are acting like the main directorial, you know, a wide shot, an inner cut with the close up. And then you're seeing all these other cameras with images of specific characters. And what the director has done is that to a certain cameraman, you always follow the mermaid. 
you always follow the poet, or each camera operator is assigned a certain character, or sometimes they're assigned the same character, but one camera will be assigned only to do close-ups, another camera only to do wide shots. So these are all isolated recorded, and because of the technology now, everything's digital, everything's locked in, when we edit the show, all of this will be timed, and that he can just literally cut from the inserts. He'll insert into the main action some of these other images. So um, it's a very efficient way of directing. And uh, I, I, I've learned a lot from him this past week, watching him set up his uh, camera shots. And he works with um, uh, another person called the AD, the associate director. And this person here does all the heavy lifting. Uh, she is basically reading the script, the dance script, to the camera operators, telling them, you know, a lift is coming, a high kick is coming, camera three, watch out, you know, we've got uh, uh, someone coming in frame, don't follow that person, follow someone else, and at the same time, preparing the next shot. I mean, it's amazing. And what's interesting is that she's not using uh, classical dance terms uh, for the steps that we know, so you'll hear something like, She's going to jump like a bunny rabbit or, you know, <laughs> going to hop, hop, hopping around, hopping rolling around. on the floor. There she goes. <laughs> high arms, high arms, big kick, big kick. It's like, it's like me describing dance. <laughs> but when you think about it, the camera operators, they don't know a jeté from a tondu. And, and uh, so, you know... You're talking to um, camera operators who may have done a, a, a soccer game last week uh, or, you know, a completely different show. And they love doing ballet. Whenever these uh, operators come, they just love doing ballet. But the terms really do throw them, hence some of these uh, bunny hop terms and then rolling on the floors. But I think one of the, one of the most uh, interesting things about the difference between these films and watching dance on stage is the ability to focus the viewer's attention and tell the story. When, I don't know about you, but when I'm watching the stage, I get distracted, I'm looking at this dancer, that dancer, and sometimes I lose, you know, the, a key piece of the storytelling. A really good example of that was in Othello, because in that second act, when the Tarantella, there's just so much going on with We've, the, we've actually got, got that, that clip. With yeah. the handkerchief and everything. There were times when that entire dance would pass and I'd go, oh, I forgot to watch for the scarf. And this way, you actually, it, it, the, the camera the camera tells you exactly what yeah. the story is. Yeah, I did not cue him at all to say you that, but no. I was just about to say, let's go to um, Othello. This was, again, it was filmed in approximately 2001, I think. Um, the choreography is Lar Lubavitch. The music is a commission score, Elliot uh, Goldenthal. Thank you. Um, well, let's just watch. While you're watching, be thinking about if you were the director, what choices would you be making about? Oh, that's gorgeous. About um, where to to focus and what to cut in and what to cut out. 
Judy, this was a particularly difficult show to light for television, as I recall, because the scenery is all very reflective. This is a projection, right? And I was struck by sort of the artistic choice of close-up, pull-back, close-up, show the characters. And often uh, a choreographer and a television director will have a difference of opinion about where the focus should be. Um, and that's always a bit interesting. You know, a television director may be focused on something and the choreographer says, no, 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 you should be over here. Um, So the handkerchief is obviously very important and the choreographer gave it a whole dance in the first scene. placement of the hanky there is critical to the story and the first day that we taped this the little pocket was closed so he couldn't get the hanky in there and then the second day we taped it we got into the we got it in but they got into the tarantella and it fell out and so we were frantic to get the second tape and compare the two to see if we had enough that we could piece the scene together and we just made it. <laughs> and as we were saying, the handkerchief is absolutely the plot turns on. That's the betrayal um, that, that Iago um, manipulates and plants the handkerchief on Cassio so that Othello will think that Desdemona has had the affair and it's... Um, I mean, he kills her, so it was pretty important that it be in the right place. Um, so that then becomes the job of the editors and the... Well, it, editing and uh, directing both. I mean, you have... A, typically what we do here, and we're doing this with Mermaid, we have three recordings. The first recording isn't a real recording. It's basically a rehearsal. We have the cameras in place, the director, the ca camera operators, uh, the orchestra, and the sound... Equipment. This is the first time everyone's seeing or hearing it. So it really is a rehearsal for all the technical people. But after that rehearsal, we'll look at the DVD recording that we make just for our purposes. And from that, we see all the mistakes or all the problems, what needs to be fixed or corrected. And then we have two real takes. And between the real two recordings, we will edit and make a hopefully perfect show. And so the first recording, you would always like to have it be perfect. 
and with a fellow. When we had the hanky problem, we thought, oh dear, at least we'll get it the second time. Um, when we recorded the first time, you could see Iago trying to plant the uh, <laughs> handkerchief, but it didn't go anywhere. And as Glenn said, on the second day, it got in, but then came out. So um, we had to compare the two shows to see if there was enough coverage, because if not, we would have had to do a, a special recording or pickup or insert. And so the director, you know, will ask the tapes be put up. We compare the two shows quickly to see if we're covered, because if not, we'd have to let the the cast know immediately that they would have to stay behind, that the orchestra would have to stay behind and um, do a little pickup or patch session. Exactly. The dollar bills dollar just signs. floating out the window. All yeah. for a little hanky. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, let's look at this clip um, that we have of the Nutcracker, and um, mostly just from the point of view of some artistic choices in filming. So this is a scene that's all about magic happening. This is when the dream happens, when all of the reality just stops. And I'm wondering how filming was able to enhance that. Well, I don't think we did anything to enhance the theatrical. Uh, it was basically, but what was interesting is because of the set, and the staging that did dictate where the director wanted to put his cameras to better um, focus on what was happening theatrically on the stage. Um, I mean, um, I think everyone knew this was a stage production and we weren't trying to put special effects or anything like that. Um, but clearly the production itself was so spectacular that I think the director's goal was to basically show as much of the stage and the theatrical experience as possible. I think this is particularly successful because you can really believe that she's miniaturized. Yeah. And then I just wanted to comment slightly. We were going to pause that. Um, I'm, I don't know much about film technique at all, but it seems to me that what we're about to see in the snow scene is a terrific example of film enhancing the, um, the artistic impression of what's actually happening. So, okay, let's go ahead. This is the most cutting um, editing in, in the whole piece, I think, and you can see why uh, when they get into faster parts of the music. But being in the truck while this was being taped was like being in a whiteout because you've got a dozen monitors all with a different angle on this scene. So there's snow everywhere. But as you said, it, it enhances what is already happening in the house. I mean, I think if you saw this production in the house, everyone just loves the snow scene. It is a spectacular um, production, and I think Matthew Diamond, the director, uh, definitely in the spirit of what Helgi achieved in the theater, um, wanted to enhance. Uh, 
Um, I think that I was going to ask the question at this point. It probably makes sense to ask it here. The difference between filming live and filming in the studio, as they did for Romeo and Juliet or Song for Dead Warriors or Jinx, mm -hmm. um, what are the pros and cons? Well, obviously, uh, in a studio, you have much more control. You can, especially for lighting, we would love to have backlight behind dancers because it makes them look so beautiful, and you can't do that in the theater. Um, so definitely, in a in controlled environment, such as a studio, you have the opportunity to control every image and get the best you possibly can. So it's a control factor. It's very expensive to do that, and I think when you're making a film, um, it is like a film. I mean, you're telling a story, and you're trying to get the viewer inside the space, whereas in the opera house, we're not pretending that we're not in the opera house. You see the stage, you see the curtain, and you're basically documenting a theatrical experience for um, the home viewer. So I think stylistically you can still achieve things such as you saw here with uh, the snow scene, you know, these, these wonderful close-ups and the dissolves and you get uh, in, an enhanced experience. But it's still a theatrical experience. And once you're inside the studio, um, it's, it's like watching a film. But Judy will have to actually deliver several versions of the show. Uh, depending on where it will play. So there'll be a different PBS version, credits are different, that sort of thing, than from the foreign version. And when we did Nutcracker, there was also a version that went for theatrical release. So it was actually played in certain movie theaters, and it was very important that that version show people coming into the theaters so that you felt as though you were actually at the opera house. Oh, wow. Didn't realize that. I'm actually thinking of one example of how the whole process went the other direction. Um, Frederick Ashton's work, A Tales of Beatrix Potter, was designed for film. It was a movie, and it was done on a set. And then it was adapted, transferred to the stage a number of years later. And um, we were privy to hearing Christopher Wheeldon, I think it was, side-splittingly funny story of being one of the little pigs in the stage version and backing off into the wings and crashing into something and anyway. Uh, we do have a little bit of footage of The Little Mermaid. What you're about to see is archival. This is from the film that was done um, probably last season and it's been what you've seen on the website but I think it will kind of give us jumping off place for the last few comments about this piece in particular. Um, can we go to the mermaid clip now? This is the mermaid dancing with the prince, playing with him. And this is after she has lost her, her tail, her fin, and has come on land and is finding it excruciating. The 
Prince is on board the ship with the Prince and the Princess. to know how this is going to be filmed. Those of you to watch because we can already tell in the truck that because it's lit for television, it's going to be so much more beautiful than the archival tape. Mm -hmm. Stay tuned. <laughs> um, I was after you said that about how the um, how frustrating it is not to get just a simple flat um, archival piece. This has actually got a lot of close-ups, so I can hear your frustration or your director's frustration. Well, I think there was, a, this was not, I mean, this was actually cut from an archival recording, um, and they did have a full wide shot, so we had to ask for that, but we, they did have that. Is there any other comment you would like to make about the filming of Mermaid? And then we've got about five minutes we can let our audience ask some questions. I think we just want to take the opportunity to thank some, some very loyal and generous uh, supporters of the ballet. Um, Judy and I thought we raised the money in a week. It took five months. And uh, it really took a lot of people uh, having faith uh, in, in our ability to actually pull it together. And it happened really in the 11th hour, and we're just very grateful to everyone who contributed. Would any of you like to ask questions? Um, for those of you who might have dribbled in and didn't see the uh, opening credits, I've been talking with Judy Flannery, who is the um, exact title. Uh, I'm one of the producers. Actually, I'm the producer of uh, Little Mermaid. Producer. And um, the media consultant for San Francisco Ballet right okay. now. Okay, media consultant for the ballet, which is fabulous. And producer, one of the producers, the producer of the Little Mermaid film being made almost as we speak. And Glenn McCoy, who is executive director of the company and longtime administrator with the company. So, questions? There's just so much that... Okay. Yes, um, we have. Well, yes, we, the question. Um, the question about how does the music, uh, how how is the music edited when we edit the the video as well, coming from different sources. The obviously we record audio and video simultaneously. They are locked and synced, and when we edit from one source to another or one day to another, they have to be in sync. And that's one of the key technical um, issues that we spend a lot of time making sure. Because if you're all, if you're not in sync, you're you're gonna have terrible problems, and you can't edit, or you'll have a very costly problem. Um, but that's a good question because um, music has to fit the picture. Absolutely.
We try not to include coughs and sneezes and uh, paper rustling. Um, and depending on uh, the audio producer and how he has set up his microphones, he can take a lot of that noise out. And we do acknowledge that it's a house and that if you know people applaud at the end and, and that's very welcomed and we like that, we just try to keep the, the, the naughty noises out. I remember when they were filming The Tempest, which is technologically dark ages, really. It was 1981. It was live. It was live um, and there, were no, there wasn't a second performance. That's right. It was but, live. But what we had is we, had, we, re, we didn't record, but we had rehearsals for two previous performances before the third went live. Um, so the... Um, it's, I just recall it was a special audience. It was not a regular season subscription performance such as you will see or might be seeing tomorrow night. Because it was live, um, it, was, it had to be um, 8 o'clock on the East Coast. So for the first time, I think, in San Francisco ballet history, they had a performance at 5 p.m. And they had a special audience um, that they actually sold tickets for that performance. And that was a 5 o'clock uh, curtain. And I recall that there were instructions. You had instructions about um, applauding and coughing and <laughs> that yes. kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and the house, even today, before the recording last night, the house does make an announcement reminding the audience that the performance is being recorded and please not just stand in front of the cameras and things like that. Yes. But, it's, but it's, uh, we're, we work with an amazing uh, audio engineer, uh, Adam Abe's house. Yeah who's done our last three projects, and he can get rid of almost anything. It's amazing, and, and you'll, you'll get concerned. He'll say, oh, I can clean that up. Oh, that's fabulous. Uh, one more question. Yeah. Right, I think, yeah. Um, is there something between uh, the studio and the live performance? And I think we're seeing more and more of these uh, site-specific works where uh, dances are taking place off the stage, but not in a studio, but on location. But because um, it is being filmed, you have the control factor, and uh, you can light uh, a certain area or create a certain space and film. Uh, it's a very interesting, uh, exciting look to dance. I'm recalling that um, John Butler's Carmina Burana was filmed in a castle yes. in the Netherlands back in the 1960s or 70s. But he was using the castle as a set. Yeah. 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 This gentleman had a question. Okay, and that'll be our last question. Well, most of our directors, dance directors, they, they often like to remind uh, the camera operators, unlike an opera where the tenor or the soprano stands in one spot for five minutes and then they move over to another spot and sing for five minutes, these dancers are flying left, right, and jumping all over the place. And many of the camera operators, um, that, that's what's very, very important. Directors can anticipate and they plan their scripts accordingly, knowing where the action is going to be, wide, tight, this, that. But it's the operators who have to deliver. 
And typically, uh, many of the operators that we use, when they're not doing performance programs, many of them do sports. And uh, I'll never forget uh, Merrill Brockway, one of our grandfathers of uh, dance directing, said that he would always be happy to take a hockey, uh, a, camera, a camera operator who did hockey games, and he says, I can make a ballet uh, dancer and operator out of him. Because you have to keep the puck in focus and follow that puck at 100 miles an hour. And he says, if he could do that, I'll make him into a dance uh, operator. That's fabulous. I'm sorry we have to cut this off. And before I actually thank our guests, I want to... Um, Thank you all for what's been a wonderful season for our programming. I'm looking forward to seeing you all next season. I think we start at the last week of January, but I know you'll be getting notices in the mail and on your uh, e-blasts, and I hope that you will be looking forward eagerly to the next season and your support of the ballet, for which we are very grateful. Thank you, Glenn, and thank you, Judy. Thank you.